he had this extra burden upon him, and, and he, he came to me with these big puppy dog eyes, <laughs> talking about, oh, yeah, teach ABF tomorrow, too, and, and, uh, and so I, okay, Jeremy, I'll, I'll teach the ABF for you. I'm, I'm well enough I could do that. And uh, so I worked on that yesterday. But guess what his ABF topic was going to be? Manipulation. <laughs> I've been studying good. <laughs> I, learned, I learned me that. But I, really, I, I praise the Lord for Pastor Jeremy and, the, and just knowing that even at the last minute, uh, well, it wasn't his last minute, it was last time. No, no. Yeah. And I'm glad it's not the result of a heart attack this right. last time. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, let's, I just want to have a word of prayer for, for Jeremy. Lord, I thank you for my, my brother here, and I pray that he, as he comes to um, uh, lead us in understanding your word, that your spirit would work through him and in us, and that you would be honored and glorified by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are notes in the uh, bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This morning's topic is really one of the nearest and dearest in my heart. What is saving faith? What does it mean to believe? And as we study the scriptures, I'll, I'll, I'll add in a little bit of my experience, my testimony to explain this. But I, I think it's one of two most important questions a person could know. The first, what we've been studying in the last week or so, what is the gospel or what is the object of our faith? And I want to distinguish between what we are believing in, who we are believing in, which is Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, according to the scriptures for our sins. That is the only saving object of faith. To believe in anything else or to add anything to Jesus and his work is not the, is not the gospel. But this week, we're not talking about who and what are we believing in but what does it mean to believe? What type of faith? What is the nature of saving faith? And that may seem like a strange question, but I want to challenge you with a challenge we gave our senior hires. Imagine you're sharing your faith with someone, and they're genuinely interested. And you've explained to them that if they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Imagine they turn to you and they say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? What, what are you saying I must do? How do I know if I have believed? What would you say? And, I, and, I, and if you're anything like some of the high schoolers and me, you may be drawing a blank. Well, will you, will you believe? Yes, but what does it mean to believe? Well, you, you really believe. Really. Really, really, really believe. And I, and I think the Bible has got some clear answers for what it means to believe. And more importantly, I think we'll see some examples that there is a belief that does not save. There, there are some examples in Scripture of people that the text said they believed. And it's evident that we will see their belief is not saving. And this is one of the things that, that God used to wake me up. I, I, a little brief insight to my history. I, I would have always thought I was a believer. I, I can't remember a time when I did not understand the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, his work on the cross. My, my parents sent me to a Christian elementary school, and it goes so far back, I can't remember learning it. I'm sure there was a time when I did, but 
And I would have said I was a Christian, and I, and I would have thought that I was a believer, and yet um, it's clear to me now that I was in no way born again until um, the summer of 1999. I was 23, but we'll get more into that later. Another reason why I think this is important is that there's an alarming trend in our churches today. We've been to two youth conferences in the last year that both stated very similar figures. Somewhere between 70 and 80% of our young people leaving the church, going off to college, completely abandon any and all profession of faith. These are young people who have been baptized. These are young people who have claimed to be believers. And, and sure, for some of them, the Lord will bring them back and, and they're backslidden. But surely we must consider that many of them simply made false professions of faith. Did they really understand what faith is, what it means to believe? So, and, and finally, I want to challenge everyone here that you would examine yourself. And I know that that's never a fun thing to do. It's much easier to look at other people and, and evaluate their faith. But I really think in reach, upreach, in reach, outreach, that as we prepare, and this is part of our what is the gospel, how do we evangelize, it's got to start with us. We've got to know what faith is. We've got to be living, saving faith before we can tell others about it. Now let me give you an example. Open your Bible to John chapter 8. In case you think I'm making this too complicated, in case you want to say, Pastor Jeremy, it's just as simple as believe. You just got to believe. And that's true if what you mean by believe is what the Bible means by believe. But I want to show you some people who believe. And Jesus has some very interesting things to say to them. John chapter 8, starting in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Notice that twice we're told these people are believers in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, when he speaks, he lies. And he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. These people are said to believe. Twice we're told they believe. And yet, by the end of this discussion, it is entirely clear these are not born-again believers. These are not people right with God. 
And so it, I think it's a legitimate question to ask, what is the nature of saving faith? Because if, be, if you can be said to believe, if the inerrant text of God's word can say you believed, and yet these things can be said about you, it, it means then that there are types of faith. It means that there is a faith that saves, and there's a faith that you can be called a son of the devil. So I don't want you to think that I'm trying to make this overly complicated. Um, I think it's there in Scripture, but we need to ask the question, what does it mean to believe? What is saving faith? This may not be a comfortable question to ask, but I'd, I'd really challenge and encourage you to, to first examine yourself and then to think about this as you try to explain the gospel to others. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong in telling people to ask Jesus into your heart or, or to accept Jesus, but because these are not terms and phrases found in the Bible... The danger of using them predominantly, which is, I think, what most people in the church do, and I mean just the American church, is that it's easier and easier when we use phrases that aren't found in Scripture for the meaning of those phrases to drift further and further from what the Bible means. And so if a person asks Jesus into their heart and what they do when they do that is what the Bible calls faith, well, amen, they'll be saved. But I do think it's important for us to be able to explain what that means. I'd like to start by looking at four things that saving faith is not. Four things that saving faith is not. And, and I want you to, that may seem like a strange place to start. But have you ever considered how strange it is that in most of Jesus' ministry, when he's got multitudes following him, he's actually saying things that turn them away. Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you cannot be my disciples. And Masses leave, and other people, he tells them, unless you forsake all, you cannot be disciples. Or foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, I think a lot of what Jesus is doing is telling these massive crowds of people who for a time are excited about Jesus, he's warning them that the nature of their faith, the nature of their commitment is not legitimate. He knows that when he is crucified, most of these people will be crying out for his blood. The thousands of people that he fed are not going to be believers standing at the cross crying out, take our Lord down. They'll be crying out for his blood. Out of these thousands of people that Jesus is ministering to, handfuls really believe. And Jesus is warning them. He's, he's warning them to examine the content of their faith. And he's revealing unbelief. And he's revealing half-hearted faith. And so let's take a look at the first of these. What is not, what saving faith is not? Merely belief the gospel is true. Merely belief that the gospel is true. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. R.C. Sproul said, so, so, you, so you believe the facts of the gospel. You think Jesus is who he said he is. That only qualifies you to be a demon. Do you know where the in the Gospels, do you know where the strongest, most exalted statements of the deity of Christ are found? On the lips of demoniacs. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The highest. They, they know who Jesus is. There's no confusion. The devil has got very good theology. He just hates it. He just hates it. But he, but he understands it truly. He's not confused about who Jesus is. And we must not think that just because we, I think this is true. And I would say that really characterized my faith prior to my conversion. My faith. 
I thought Jesus was the Son of God like I thought George Washington was the first President of the United States. Sure, that's true. Absolutely. Why not? But, but I don't think that that was faith. That, that's what the demons have and believe, and they shudder. Saving faith is not merely believing the facts of the gospel to be true. You, you need to believe the facts of the gospel are true, but that's not enough. Demons believe. Secondly, it's, it's not a desire only for blessings and spiritual power. Blessings and spiritual power. Go over with me to Acts 8. We read a very strange encounter of another man who is said to believe. Acts 8. And here, Philip is down in Samaria preaching, and there's a, a man named Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer. He's, he's some notable bigwig in town who, who people think is something. And, and we'll pick it up in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Sounds good. He believed, he was baptized, and he followed. Sounds good. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus when they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He believed, he was baptized, and he followed. And Peter turns to him and says, May your money perish with you. Whatever it was he believed, he was just interested in power, things now. Think of how much I could charge if I could give the Holy Spirit with the laying on of my hands. Oh. And, and maybe that's not what some of us are interested in, but how many people come to Christ because they want a better life, better job, better family? And how often do we hear the gospel presented as if Jesus is simply the cure for temporal problems? You need peace? Come to Jesus. You need better family life? Come to Jesus. Now, I think those things will generally accompany salvation. But if that's why we're coming to Jesus, if that's why we love Jesus, if that's what our faith is in and looking at, then really, we're no better off than Simon the sorcerer. We believe in Jesus, and we'll follow, but we want the stuff. We want the goodies. We want the blessing. We want the power. That's what we're into. So, desire for blessing and spiritual power is not necessarily saving faith. And I'm trying to pick examples where the text says these people believed. I want to make it really clear. You can believe like Simon the sorcerer and perish. You can believe like the people in John 8 and perish. You can believe like demons believe and perish. We are absolutely saved by faith and faith alone. But not all faith is the same. Three, what is not saving faith? Saving faith is not temporary. 
Saving faith is not temporary. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the first five or six verses, is a wonderful gospel summary. If you ever get stumped, you want to find a place to go that succinctly lays the gospel out. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to go. I want to look at the first two verses. Paul tells the Corinthians, a church he planted, a church he ministered in for over a year. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says this, there's two possibilities. You've received the word, you're standing in it, and I'm calling you to remain in it. But if you don't remain in it, Paul says, that would indicate that your faith was vain, it was vaporous, it was empty, it was without substance. So Paul acknowledges that there's, these people potentially, if they don't remain, if they don't persevere, will show that they have an empty faith. They have a dead faith. And the implication of this passage is that, safe will not, that faith will not save you. The gospel I preached, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul, Paul doesn't believe in temporary faith. Paul doesn't believe in temporary faith. One other passage that makes this point, Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, for n- that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now look at verse 14. For we share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the language here is, is very important. It's not you become a Christian if you make it to the end. You are a Christian if you make it to the end. Which, which then, if, what happens if you don't make it to the end? It's not that you lose your salvation. It's you weren't a Christian to begin with. For we share in Christ. We are now sharing in Christ. We, in this room, are sharers in Christ if we make it to the end. And if one of us fails to make it to the end, then the suggestion is not that we lost our salvation, but that we right now are not sharers in Christ. That's a key distinction. This is not teaching a person can lose his salvation. What this is teaching is that true, saving faith perseveres. It may ebb and flow. It may have seasons of of lowness, but it will not ultimately die. Think of the parable of the sower and the seed that springs up out of rocky soil. You think of Simon the sorcerer. He's excited. He gets baptized. He follows. It has no root, and it withers and dies. That is not the faith that saves That is not the faith that saves. And the danger on this for some of us is that we put our faith in our faith. My wife tells me that she used to struggle with this because she was so focused on the date and the time when she believes she was saved that whenever she would doubt her salvation, whenever she'd wonder, am I a Christian? Instead of asking the right question, which is, am I now believing? Am I now a believer in Jesus Christ? Am I now living faith? 
She would go back and examine the date four years ago. Did I really mean it four years ago? Did I really, really mean it? I think I did, but what if I didn't? And then maybe you write it in your Bible to remind you. That's not a bad thing. But don't put your faith in your faith. Don't put your faith in your decision. Be a person who is right now putting your faith in Jesus. In some sense, it doesn't matter whether you meant it four years ago. What matters is do you mean it now? And the Bible emphatically is talking about a present faith, not a past event of faith, but a present faith. John 3.16, in a woodenly literal translation, would say, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his unique son so that everyone who is believing, each one believing, might not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to save believers, not people who believed but no more. And, and we got to be careful with this. I have no doubt that my son, at some point, because he loves us, because he desires to please me, will profess faith in Jesus. I have no doubt. The danger for me to think would be to just lock on to that, and, and even if Abner's 16 or 17 and, and living lawlessly, to somehow cling to something he said when he was five years old. I'm not saying that five-year-olds cannot genuinely exercise faith. I'm sure they can. But, but the evidence in our churches is, is many of our youth and children leaving the church and never coming back. We're not exercising real faith when they pray to prayer, when they ask Jesus into their heart. Because true faith perseveres. It keeps going. It bears fruit. And, and it's, it's folly to cling to some profession, cling to some event that happened in the past if there's no faith now. The question we should be asking is, are we now believing? Not did we believe? Finally, fourth category, what saving faith is not. Saving faith is not unfruitful and disobedient. Unfruitful and disobedient. Turn with me to James 2. Now, if you want to think of this whole notion of object versus type of faith, Galatians corrects errors in what we are believing in. The letter of Galatians is written primarily to correct the misunderstanding that the gospel is believe in Jesus and be circumcised. And Paul says in no uncertain terms, if you add circumcision to the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. He uses some of his strongest language correcting that error. He wants to make sure the object of our faith is the right object. Lord Jesus and his work and person and nothing else. But James, he's concerned with the type of faith. He's not correcting errors in what you're believing in, but the type of faith you have. And listen to this. James 2, 14 to 20. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The assumed answer is No. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's useless. See, works don't save us, but works are the evidence of real faith. Let me, let me give you an analogy so we don't confuse this. If we have a, a dead body in front of us, giving it CPR, helping it breathe, is not going to bring it to life, right? But if you think a body in front of you and you're wondering, is it alive or dead? Checking to see if it's breathing is a pretty good indicator. And if it's not breathing, it's dead. Faith plus works does not bring life. If you're not sure if you have faith, the answer isn't go do some works. That's like doing CPR to a corpse. But true faith will breathe. It'll give signs. It'll evidence life. But the danger is there's a lot of people who've got corpse faith. It's not doing anything. And they, they try to convince themselves it's real faith. And James says, no, no way. It's dead. It's useless. Now let, now let me be clear here. We're not talking perfection we're not talking about sinlessness. What we're talking about is signs, evidences of faith that affect our life. It's very easy to think you believe something and live something else. I did that for over two decades. I did that for over two decades. Where here's what I believe, and here's what I live my life based on. And never the twain shall meet. And the reason for this is, is think through this. We always, 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 always always live out what we are believing in the moment. Always. You can always find out what you really believe by what you do. Let me give you an example. Let's go to the Garden of Eden. Let's go to the first sin. Here's Eve. She has a word from God. Either God gave it to her, her husband gave it to her, saying, don't eat from that tree. The day you eat of it, you will die. There's truth. And then the serpent comes in, and he offers a different interpretation, different way of looking at things. He suggests that perhaps God's motives are not pure. God's a little jealous. He's a little nervous. And that he suggests eating the fruit instead of bringing death will bring fulfillment, wisdom, and make us more like God. Eve's got a dilemma on her hands. What will she believe? You see, before she ever reaches out her hand to grab that fruit, there's a battle inside of her of faith. What is true? What will she believe? Now, the text doesn't tell us explicitly what she believed, but we all know perfectly well what she believed. Because we know what she did. There's no use saying she believed God, but she ate the fruit. No, she didn't believe God. In that moment, she did not believe God. How do we know? She didn't obey. See, you and I are faced with the same decisions every day when temptation comes, and what will we believe? And we'll know what we believe by what we do. When we sin, we are, in that moment, living out unbelief. In that moment, we don't believe God. In that moment, the lies of our heart, the lies of this world, the lies of the devil are compelling to us. They deceive us. They, they seduce us. And we sin. And that's why when we repent, we say, I was thinking something wrong, and now I'm thinking something right, and I was, I was believing a lie, and now I'm believing the truth, and we confess. And that's what repentance and confession is all about. Acknowledging, there was a time earlier today when I was believing a lie. And I acted on it, and I sinned. God, forgive me. I'm now believing the truth. Sin is lived down unbelief. And when that connection gets made, that, that was the big connection for me. You can look at all of our lives and see what we believe just by what we're doing. That's what James says. Show me your faith by your works. Which leads me then to my definition of faith. And I worked hard at this. What then is faith? I've spent all this time, what isn't faith? What is faith? 
Here's a definition I like. I ran this by Pastor Gary. He, he liked it. Um, I hope this will be clear. Faith is our confidence and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which causes us to pursue and obey him. Which causes us to pursue and obey him. Faith is not the obey, obedience, but faith is the thing that causes obedience. Because we believe the truth, we act on it. If Eve had really believed God instead of Satan, she wouldn't have eaten the fruit. So our faith is that within us which causes us to pursue Christ and to obey him. Let's see if I can back that up with some scripture. Let's go to Hebrews 11. What is frequently called the hall of faith. After giving a very good definition of faith, the author of Hebrews proceeds to stack up example after example after example of men of faith, encouraging us to model, mimic, imitate their faith. I just want to pick some bullet points out of this. I'd really encourage reading the entire chapter sometime if you want to look further at what faith is. We're just going to pick and choose a couple choice fruit from this passage. Let's look at the first three verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And here we get some insight. Faith is an assurance, it's a conviction. Some of your translations may say proof or evidence. And what it's speaking to is certainty. First word for assurance in some places is used literally as like a title deed. That, that's the type of faith we're talking about. Confidence and assurance. It's not some vague intellectual notion. It, it's something that we're, we're holding on to and it's real to us. Go on to verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. See, faith believes in God. That's what the demons do. But look at this next part. It also believes he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Some of your translations say eagerly seek him. See, faith believes in God and diligently seeks him. The demons believe in God and want to get as far away from him as possible. We believe in God. We want to draw near to him. We want to seek him. And that's, that's why that first blank of my definition is to pursue Christ. If you have faith, you're pursuing him in his word, in your prayer life. Do you want to draw closer to him? Really? It's, it's easy to think you do. How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend reading God's word? How much time do you spend thinking about Christ? How much time are you concerned with pleasing him? It is really easy to have a far, warm, fuzzy picture in your head of, I love Jesus, and then live your life as though you hate him. I did that for many years. I want these fingers to be pointing at me, first of all. If you were to look at my life, almost all of my actions were based on what I believed to be true, and all my actions were unbelief towards God. And yet in my head, I thought, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's a lovely guy. He saved me. Isn't that nice? What a nice guy. Thank you, Jesus. And I went on my merry way until it started connecting those dots that if I really believed this, really, 
wouldn't I be living differently? You know, an analogy that might help make this plainer that's been often used, you may have heard before, is imagine, imagine Pastor Gary is, is taking up a new tightrope walking act. And he invites all of us to, to witness it. And they set up a, they set up a, a rope from the top of the church to a, a, a lamppost nearby. And, and he walks back and forth on the tightrope. And we're all impressed. We said, wow, he has got mad skills we knew nothing of. And then he gets a wheelbarrow. And he's walking across the tightrope with the wheelbarrow. And we're just astounded. And then he puts in 50 pounds of bricks in the wheelbarrow. And wow. And with, getting over the flu and all. He's got, he'll surprise you. And then he gets 100 pounds in the wheelbarrow. And then 200 pounds in the wheelbarrow. And then he says, who thinks I can do 400 pounds in the wheelbarrow? And we've seen him go back and forth. And we all go, you can do it. You can do it. He says, I need two volunteers to get in the wheelbarrow. You see the difference? The question is, are you willing to act on your faith? And if you're not willing to act on your faith, as much as you might be standing on the sidelines cheering on Jesus, you can do it, Jesus. You can save me. Yay, Jesus. Get in the wheelbarrow. I mean, have you ever considered that's what Jesus means when he says things like, whoever does not pick up his cross and I himself cannot be my disciple? Get in the wheelbarrow. Because they're cheering him on. Yay, Jesus, the miracle caterer. Yay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the cross and all men are going to hate you for my sake. No. <laughs> Get in the wheelbarrow. Get in the wheelbarrow. And it's about faith. It's about what you believe. It's about what you have confidence in. If the push comes to shove, what do you believe? You will see what you believe by what you do. Absolutely. With, without any deviation. You will know what you believe by what you do. Let's look at the example of Abraham and then bring this to a close. We have communion. Abraham bears this out a little further on in the chapter. Look at verse 8. You see, as the chapter unloads faith and shows us people of faith, I want you to notice the pattern of how we see their faith. It doesn't say, Abraham believed God and felt really warm and fuzzy inside. It's not what it says. He may very well have felt warm and fuzzy. I'm, I'm a big fan of warm and fuzzy. But I don't think it proves anything. It says, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed and he was called to go out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. God said, Abraham, leave everything behind. Leave your family, leave your homeland, get up and go. I'm going to give you a land. And Abraham believed. How do we know he believed? Because he went. Now, can you imagine Abraham saying, I really believe God, but I think I'm going to stay here. I, no, but, but I believe him. I do. I do. I, I got, I, I, yes, I, got, I feel it within me. I believe him. He sang songs about how sweet it is to trust in God, but he stayed home. We wouldn't believe him, would we? You don't, Abraham. At the end of the day, you're trusting in what you can see. At the end of the day, Abraham, you're trusting in what's in your hands. You don't want to let it go. At the end of the day, you don't really believe God. See, Abraham left everything that he had and said he did it by faith. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise is in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promises, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abraham obeyed and left his homeland. Look at verse 17 and 19, where Abraham shows up again. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, 
who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That really is the test. God had promised him, this is the boy. This is the boy that I'm going to carry out my promises to you through. Not through Ishmael, but through him, through Isaac. And then later God says, Abraham, I want you to go kill Isaac. Which just seems insane. And the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into what Abraham is thinking. He said, I know God, I believe God is a truthful God. God made a promise to me. Okay? God wants me to kill my son. Then I guess God's going to have to raise him from the dead to keep his promise. Okay, that's what God's going to do. That is some amazing faith. And he acted on it. And God didn't stop him until he went up to the top of that mountain, made the altar, tied his son up, put him on the altar, picked up the knife, then at the last second, stop. And we know Abraham believed. How do we know he believed? Because he, what he did. There's no doubt. There's no arguing. I don't really think Abraham believed. Are you kidding me? But imagine instead Abraham just stays home. That's just, that's a little, that's a little radical. That's a little extreme, all things in moderation. But no, I believe God. I, be, I believe him. I just don't want to be an extremist. It's a little extreme. His connection of what you do and what you believe, it just permeates through the Bible. This is how Jesus can say things like in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. And we're tempted to say as good biblical study, students, what do you mean he who does the will of your Father? We're saved by faith, not by doing the will of your Father. But Jesus is basically saying you'll tell the people who have faith because you'll see them because they do the will of my Father. Turn with me quickly to Romans 16, where these thoughts come together even more clearly. Paul is describing his apostleship, what his mission on earth is, is to communicate a message from God. Acts, I mean Romans 16, 25 to 26. This is his doxology, his benediction at the end of the letter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. You see how those things fit together? The obedience that comes from faith. The obedience of faith. And that's the type of faith we're looking for. The type of faith that will power obedience. James warns against faith that we think is faith that doesn't power obedience. It's like, eh, you don't really believe. Paul is calling people, God is calling people to the obedience of faith. Again, we are not saved by what we do. God is not calling people to do good things so he'll forgive them. What God is calling them to is a belief that is so confident that it's willing to act. It's willing to get in the wheelbarrow. That's the faith we're looking for. Are you willing to act upon your faith? If you are, praise God. And if you're not, as much as it may be uncomfortable to look at these things, you will do yourself no favor by saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. 
I'd like to close just by asking you to, to examine yourself. My, my biggest fear would be that anyone here on the day of judgment would hear, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so before we can preach the gospel to others, we need to preach it to ourselves. And we're not looking for perfection. What we're looking for is signs of faith, specifically signs of faith through the life we live. Is there any breath? Is there any breathing? Is there a pulse at all? Some of ours might be stronger than others. Some of us might be evidencing it more than others. But there needs to be evidence. There needs to be impact on our lives. And if it's not there, please don't think the solution is get to work, go do good things for God. The solution is to fall on your knees before God. Cry out to him for a new heart. Cry out to him for faith. Cry out to him. I, I believe, help my unbelief. And then, go act upon that faith. I just want to close in a word of prayer. Lord God, I just pray, Lord, that you would work faith in the hearts of all who are here. Lord, for those who, who believe, increase our faith. And Lord, if there's anyone here with mental assent, just wanting blessings, temporary faith, or with unfruitful faith, Lord, help them to see that, that is not what you call for. You're calling us to the obedience of faith. Lord God, I just pray that you would work that faith in our hearts. Help us to be so confident in who you are and what you have done for us that we'd get in the wheelbarrow, that we would act, that it would impact our lives so that the world would know that we believe. Not because we say we do, but because we live it and they see it. Lord God, have your way with us. Give the increase. Jesus' name. Amen.